Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 26th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's take a look at today's weather forecast first thing. This one coming from KCRG. Dense fog is still a threat, with an area of rain moving through on Friday. A wet start to the day could give way to foggier conditions once again as we head into the weekend. A dense fog advisory is in effect until 10 o'clock a.m. on Friday, accounting for the possibility of reduced visibility as you head out and about. So far this morning, visibility has actually been pretty good. This is largely the result of rain moving through the area, which has consistently improved how far you can see when it's moved through over the last few days. That being said, we've seen reduced visibility in areas where rain has been more scattered and outside of the area where rain has ended. So, we're still wary about the potential for fog to redevelop as we go through the day. The same cycle of much of this week could repeat tonight, with visibility dropping a bit after dark. Just be ready for changing visibility conditions throughout the day, and consider allowing a little extra time to get where you're going if you're driving. Make sure your low beams are on, which will help you see better at night in fog, and also help others see you better during the day. Rain will be pretty widespread this morning, especially along and north of Interstate 80. This precipitation will slowly shift east and then northeast, but it will take several hours for it to fully exit the area. Some places may stay pretty wet, though, at least at lunchtime, with those farther north and east holding on to the rain the longest. Highs today will slowly warm toward the upper 30s in most locations. The biggest change to our weather this weekend will be the lack of new rainfall. Otherwise, conditions should remain fairly consistent. Lows will be in the upper 20s to low 30s, with highs in the mid-30s generally. Clouds will be pretty stubborn, and areas of fog could develop at times, too. We'll have plenty of moisture around still, and still adding more from melting snow. A storm system passes near the area early in the week, toward the Monday night into Tuesday time frame. This could cause an isolated rain or snow shower on Monday night, but the bigger effect of this storm will be to keep the temperatures from changing much for another day or two. Highs in the mid-30s remain likely as it moves through. That starts to change from Wednesday next week onward, with highs then likely increasing from the mid to upper 30s to the low to mid 40s by the start of the following weekend. This warm-up is still several days away, and some adjustments to the amount or length of any warming could still take place. In the end, though, it doesn't look like we'll have a lot of snow left on the ground by the end of the nine-day forecast. Turning now to the front page of The Courier, we have an article written by Tom Barton of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Teacher groups say Iowa Bill meant to protect students from grooming overbroad could have chilling effect. Dateline Des Moines. Groups representing Iowa educators say legislation designed to stop teachers from grooming their students for sexual relationships is too broadly written 
and could have a chilling effect on educators connecting with their pupils. Lawmakers on an education subcommittee Wednesday advanced legislation proposed by the Iowa Department of Education to require mandatory reporting to the Board of Education examiners of licensed school employees who engage in, quote, grooming behavior toward students or abuse students. Current law requires school boards, superintendents, area education agency administrators, and private school officials to report to the Board of Education examiners any instance of disciplinary action taking against a licensed school employee for soliciting, encouraging, or consummating a romantic or otherwise inappropriate relationship with a student, unquote. The bill adds reporting is also required for conduct that constitutes grooming behavior toward a student or for conduct that constitutes abusing a student. Eric St. Clair, legislative liaison for the Iowa Department of Education, said the bill allows the Board of Education examiners to take disciplinary action against licensed educators for more nuanced forms of inappropriate relationships with students. Groups representing Iowa teachers and school administrators raised concerns about trying to define grooming. They said the wording in the bill was too broad and could discourage educators from forming close connections and having one-on-one interactions with students that are not inappropriate or sexual in nature. Quote, I will tell you grooming is a problem, said Melissa Peterson, a lobbyist representing the Iowa State Education Association Teachers Union. Quote, and we absolutely have no interest in doing anything to protect bad apples. That being said, again, we want to make sure we aren't unnecessarily creating conditions where someone could fall under this definition is just because they're doing their job, unquote. House Study Bill 568 defines grooming behavior as, quote, engaging in a pattern of flirtatious behavior, making any effort to gain unreasonable access to or time alone with any student with no discernible educational purpose, and any behavior, quote, that can reasonably be construed as involving an inappropriate, overly personal, or intimate relationship with or conduct toward or focus on a student and engaging in any other individualized special treatment not in compliance with generally accepted educational practices, unquote. Iowa Department of Education officials said their language came from a national organization of professionals that deal with teacher licensure. Quote, the point of this bill is to get a foothold into this issue so the DOE can take action in light of all of the evidence brought before them to consider, St. Clair said. 2018 Iowa Supreme Court decision. Emily Piper, a lobbyist representing the Iowa Association of School Boards, recommended the bill be amended to include language from a 2018 Iowa Supreme Court decision that affirmed the conviction of an Eastern Iowa high school teacher who exchanged intimate Facebook messages and repeatedly hugged one of his underage students, both at and away from school. Bradley Wickes, a former social studies teacher at Comanche High School, 
challenged the district court findings that his hugs with a student constituted sexual conduct under Iowa Code. He also argued prosecutors failed to provide sufficient evidence to show he engaged in a pattern, practice, or scheme of conduct to engage in sexual conduct with a student. Quote, it's important to note that nothing should prohibit teachers from hugging students for reassurance, comfort, or in congratulation without putting themselves at risk of being charged with the crime of sexual exploitation. Then Justice Bruce Zager wrote in the court's opinion. But Wickes's behavior, quote, went far beyond a teacher trying to comfort and reassure a struggling student, the court wrote. The justices agreed with prosecutors and the lower court that the more than 600 pages of Facebook messages between Wickes and the student became flirtatious and sexual in nature and showed that the hugs the two exchanged were for the purpose of Wickes's sexual gratification. To determine whether Wickes engaged in grooming, justices wrote it required examining the actions of the teacher, quote, in light of all the circumstances, to determine if the conduct at issue was sexual and done for the purpose of arousing or satisfying the sexual desires of the teacher or the student. Nathan Arnold, a lobbyist representing professional educators of Iowa, said schools have to remain vigilant in spotting and reporting abuse and misconduct, but raised concerns the bill creates a presumption of guilt, unquote. Arnold read incidents he said have been listed by attorneys hired by school districts as grooming behavior by teachers. They included asking a student how many siblings they had and emailing students outside school hours. While the problem identified by the Department of Education, quote, is very real, Arnold said the difficulty is using the word grooming. Quote, except in very specific criminal context, it doesn't really work as a legal term with any real definition or meaning, he said. It is more of an internet smear than it is a workable legal standard, unquote. Arnold said the bill would have a chilling effect on teachers forming connections with their students, quote, if there's some sort of stigma about meeting with a student, unquote. Another grooming bill advances. Lawmakers on a judiciary subcommittee advanced a separate bill Wednesday that defined grooming as a crime in Iowa law and created penalties for violating the law. The bill, House Study Bill 575, defines grooming as using the Internet, written communications, or in-person interactions to seduce, solicit, lure, or entice a child, child's guardian, or a person believed to be a child to commit a sex act. Although lawmakers advanced the bill, members of the three-person subcommittee said they had a number of questions about why the bill was proposed and how it was worded. Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Boone, said he'd like to speak with the county attorneys about the necessity of the bill before moving it further along in the lawmaking process. Looking for Common Ground House Study Bill 568 passed the Education Subcommittee on a 2-0 vote. Representative Sharon Steckman, a Democrat from Mason City, 
declined to sign off on, wanting to see language of the proposed amendment by the Iowa Association of School Boards. Representatives Bill Gustoff, Republican from Des Moines, and Brooke Bowden, Republican from Indianola, said they agree with the aim of the bill and voted to advance it to continue discussion. Bowden said the school districts have asked for more detailed guidelines, and she believes the bill will help the Board of Education examiners, quote, make better decisions and maybe expedite the process as well, unquote. Quote, I agree that there is maybe some alternative language that we can look at here to find common ground, she said. Doctors could refuse treatment on moral grounds under this proposal. Story written by Caleb McCullough of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced a bill on Wednesday that would allow health care providers, facilities, and insurance companies to refuse medical care based on moral objections. Under Senate Study Bill 3006, medical providers would have the right to not participate in any service that is contrary to their moral beliefs. Medical institutions, hospitals, clinics, pharmacies, or medical schools would also be allowed to opt out of performing and paying for procedures that violate their conscience, and insurance companies would not be required to pay for services or medications that they have an objection of conscience to. Providers and facilities would still have an obligation to provide emergency medical treatment to all patients. Providers who refuse medical service based on conscientious objection would be shielded from liability for damages that arose from the objection. Advocates of the bill, including conservative Iowa religious organizations, say it would protect doctors from being pressured to perform procedures they have a religious or moral objection to. Tom Chapman, executive director of the Iowa Catholic Conference, said providers should have a right to exercise their conscience when dealing with patients. He pointed to existing protections for doctors who refuse to perform abortions and said the bill is an extension of that policy. Quote, no medical practitioner should be forced to participate in a procedure or medication to which he or she has an objection of conscience or violate their oath to do no harm, unquote. Opponents, though, said the bill could endanger patients and elevates the interest of providers over the health and needs of patients. They said the effects would be particularly dire in Iowa, where rural populations face a severe lack of access to quality health care. Iowa is ranked among the worst states in the nation for access to maternal health care. Quote, I have not once seen a health care worker forced to do something they don't want to do, said Francisca Turner, an OBGYN at Broadlands Medical Center in Des Moines. Quote, Pharmacists refusing prescriptions and doctors denying care, especially in rural Iowa, will only exacerbate the already dire health care crisis in our state, unquote. A growing number of states have adopted similar laws, sometimes called medical refusal bills. Lawmakers in Florida and Montana both 
passed similar laws last year. Iowa lawmakers have also considered similar provisions in past years, but they have not been signed into law. Maisie Stilwell, a lobbyist for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Iowa, said the proposed bill is more extreme than what has been put forward in the past and mirrors what other states have put in place. Quote, there is no original thought in this bill, she told lawmakers on Wednesday. What we have seen is that this is a culmination of all of these extreme provisions that we've seen shopped across the country, all put into one bill. Protecting Beliefs Existing state law already allows doctors to refuse to perform abortions based on their religious belief or moral convictions. The bill would add to those protections and require providers to offer prior written consent before being asked to perform or assist in an abortion. Medical institutions and practitioners would be protected from discrimination based on their refusal. Practitioners could not be denied privileges or public benefits based on their decision to opt out. Providers would receive whistleblower protections from retaliations if they report a facility for violating the conscience objection law. The bill would also protect doctors and other providers from being punished or having their license revoked by a state entity based on First Amendment protected speech, unless that speech directly harmed a patient. Pressure on Procedures The bill was advanced by a three-person Senate subcommittee on Wednesday. Republican Senators Jason Schultz of Schleswig and Jeff Taylor of Sioux Center voted to advance the bill, while Democratic Senator Janet Peterson of Des Moines voted against it. Taylor said he had heard from medical students in past years who were concerned they would be pressured to perform procedures during their training that they have a moral objection to. He invoked the Hippocratic Oath and said the bill would protect providers who do not want to perform procedures they think would harm patients. Quote, the whole idea of, first, do no harm. We don't always agree on what harm is, he said. Quote, Harm versus health. Two medical professionals who have been well-educated and have lots of years of experience may see those in diametrically opposed ways, unquote. Peterson said she had not heard from any physician who said they had been pressured to perform a procedure against their moral beliefs. She said the bill would further strain health care for women. Quote, I think this bill is trying to fix something that is not broken, she said. I have yet to see a single example come forward. I also have an extreme level of concern about the number of bills that we continue to see going after Iowa's access to health care, After passing the subcommittee, the bill is now eligible for a vote in the full Senate Judiciary Committee. Trump takes the stand. Jury will decide how much he owes Ryder after calling her a liar. Story comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is New York. He testified for under three minutes, but former President Donald Trump still broke a judge's rules on what he could tell a jury about writer E. Jean Carroll's sexual assault and defamation allegations, and he left the courtroom Thursday 
bristling to the spectators, quote, this is not America, unquote. Because of the complex legal context of the case, the judge limited Trump's lawyers to asking a handful of short questions, each of which could be answered yes or no, such as whether he made his negative statements in response to an accusation and didn't intend anyone to harm Carol. But Trump nudged past those limits. Quote, she said something that I consider to be false accusation, he said, later adding, quote, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency, unquote. After Judge Lewis A. Kaplan told jurors to disregard those remarks, Trump rolled his eyes as he stepped down from the witness stand. Carol looked on throughout from the plaintiff's table. The longtime advice columnist alleges that Trump attacked her in 1996 when he defamed her by calling her a liar when she went public with her story in a 2019 memoir. While Trump has said a lot about her to the court of public opinion, Thursday marked the first time he directly addressed a jury about her claims. But jurors also heard parts of a 2022 deposition, a term for out-of-court questioning under oath, in which Trump vehemently denied that he had a sexual encounter with Carol, or even knew her, calling her a sick and a whack job. Trump told jurors Thursday that he stood by that position 100%. Trump didn't attend a related trial last spring when a different jury found that he sexually abused Carol and that some of his comments were defamatory, awarding her a $5 million award. This trial concerns only how much more he may have to pay her for remarks he made in 2019 while president. She seeks $10 million. Because of the prior jury finding, Kaplan said, Trump now couldn't offer any testimony disputing or attempting to undermine the sexual abuse allegations. The law doesn't allow for do-overs by disappointed litigants, the judge said. During the trial, Carroll's attorney showed video clips, including portions of Trump's October 2022 deposition, when he denied knowing who Carroll was. One snippet shown to jurors was when Trump misidentified a photo of Carol as his ex-wife, Marla Maples. Three-time defending state champs Dyke New Hartford continues to challenge itself. Dateline Dyke. Well before Bruce Ball led Dyke New Hartford to the last three Class 2A girls state championship basketball titles, he had a vision. Dahl knew the athletes he had back in 2021 and the talented group of young players that entered his program as freshmen. He shared his vision with Wolverine Athletic Director Cody Eckmeyer. In short, Dahl said, beyond the tough regular season schedule DNH plays in the North Iowa Cedar League, he wanted to see as tough as competition as he could see in non-conference play. That discussion has led to challenging games each of the past three seasons and has not changed during the 2023-24 campaign. The top-ranked Wolverines took on fifth-ranked Solon back in November 
and absorbed a 49-48 to loss to the Spartans. Quote, we learned a lot from that game, Dahl said. Beginning Thursday, DNH ramped up its schedule once again as it hosted number four Roland Story, and this time the Wolverines were ready, using a big second quarter to propel themselves to a 57-33 to win at home. Quote, we applied what we learned from Solon to this game, and I thought our girls did a good job, Dahl said. This game was put on schedule to prepare for what is coming ahead, to see we, where we are and what we have to still work on, unquote. Jaden Peterson and Peyton Peterson each scored 19, and Marlon Bixby chipped in 13 points, including 10 in the third quarter in beating the Norsemen, who lost for the first time. It was a scrappy, feeling each other out the first quarter that resulted in physical play and numerous turnovers. Quote, when you have two athletic teams competing like that, I don't think it's going to be pretty at times, Dahl said. I think both teams were getting after it, and it was kind of fun to watch them go up and down the court, although things weren't pretty, unquote. But in the second quarter, DNH began to pull away as Dahl used one of the lessons he learned from the game with Solon to use isolating Jaden Peterson and letting her work one-on-one -on -one with her defender. That resulted in several inside buckets and a couple of outside ones. DNH outscored RS 22-7 in the second to lead 31-11 at the halftime. Quote, that is what I learned the most, is I needed to get the ball in Jaden's hands and let her create, Dahl said. I didn't do enough of that against Solon. With one minute and six seconds left in the second, Bixby hit a three-pointer from the left corner that gave the Wolverines their first 20-point lead at 29-9. Bixby hit back-to-back three-pointers midway through the third quarter that extended DNH's lead to 44-18 to before Rollins' story showed some fight going on at 10-0 with a Matilde Mata three-pointer with 5 minutes 58 seconds left in the game, pulling the Norsemen to within 44-28. to But a Peterson free throw ended the run, and the Wolverines were able to keep Rollins' story at bay the rest of the night. There is very little rest for DNH with its schedule. The Wolverines traveled to Old Wine Friday before it hosts Class 4A's 5th-ranked North Polk on Monday at 7.45 p.m. The Comets played in last year's 4A state title game. Quote, Once again, part of the plan, Dahl said. I sat down with Cody a few, a few years back and asked what can we do to get better. Credit to Cody for going out and finding the toughest games we can find that were realistic. I mean, Johnson is not realistic, but North Polk will be a team that pushes us. Quote, I just credit the vision and seeing ahead for this, unquote. Waterloo man arrested for ramming Ford Fiesta with a stolen Silverado. Story written by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo man 
has been arrested for allegedly using a stolen truck to ram another vehicle over the weekend. Police arrested Nathaniel Wayne Cummings, 38, on Saturday for three counts of assault with a weapon, leaving the scene of an accident, operating without owner's consent, and second-degree criminal mischief. Authorities allege Cummings took his mother's Chevrolet Silverado pickup and shortly before 9 a.m. Saturday rammed a Ford Fiesta carrying his ex-girlfriend and two other people while it was stopped at a red light. Court records allege he hit the Fiesta from behind and pushed it into the intersection at West 4th and Bayard Street, where it was struck by another vehicle. Officers later found Cummings at the Isle Casino Hotel, but were unable to find the pickup truck, record state. <laughs> Fundraising tops $50,000 for Waterloo Toddler with inoperable brain tumor. Story filed by Holly Hudson Hill. Dateline Waterloo. Jack Ozovic turned two on December 30th. Three days later, he was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. Jack is the youngest child of Esmir and Becca Ozogovic of Waterloo. He has an older sister, Amelia, almost six, and a brother, Luca, four. Quote, this is a very rare and a very aggressive form of cancer, Becca Ozogovic said in a phone interview from the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City, where Jack is receiving treatment. Quote, at the very beginning, this was unimaginable. It was very, very difficult, very hard, especially with him being so little. Quote, this all happened so fast. When we found out everything, me and my husband took a few days to try to prepare to talk to the kids. The hospital's child life team wrote a book about Jack and his tumor and all the things he is going through. We read it to his siblings, and they asked questions. A close friend, Selvadina Nuhanovic, started a GoFundMe page for the family. Quote, I was hesitant at first, she said. Not everyone is comfortable asking for help. But when they found out Jack had a tumor, a lot of people began reaching out to help, asking what the family needed. Quote, I told the family, this community loves you. People love you. They just want to help. This might be the best way. Initially, Nuhanovic set the goal at $10,000. That was more than tripled on the first day. Currently, donations sit at just more than $50,000 from 542 individual donors. Quote, I keep the family updated, she said. Everyone has been so supportive. They feel so loved by the community. It's great to see the support, unquote. A Facebook page, Jackie Strong, has also been started to keep people informed on Jack's journey. Quote, people are continuing to pray and send positive and good vibes to the family for healing and beating this cancer, New Hanovic said. I talk to Becca often. She is truly so grateful for our community and the amount of support. So many people have reached out. It brings her to tears, unquote. And now, listeners, we want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 26th on IRIS, 
that's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this message. I might not know you, but I still care about you. So if you feel hopeless, or if you've been thinking about suicide, please talk to someone. A friend, parent, teacher, or coworker. If you can't talk to them, or feel like you have no one there to listen, turn to Your Life Iowa. Things can get better. There are people who want to help you. Please reach out now at yourlifeiowa.org. Brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. Now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial comes from Storm Lake Times pilot, editor Art Cullen. Reynolds may have heard her last hurrah. Governor Kim Reynolds may have, quote, jumped the shark, as they say in the TV biz, by going all in with Ron DeSantis, presumably with Washington in her dreams. Reynolds and her Republican majority in the legislature went whole hog with the agenda the Florida governor cast in concert with the Moms for Liberty, book bans, muzzling teachers who talk about race and history class, a six-week abortion ban, right on down the line. It looked like it was working for DeSantis. He clobbered Charlie Crist. Likewise, Reynolds, who steamrolled Deidre Desire. Appearances can be deceiving in the face of paper opponents. The legislature has solid Republican majorities, an ideal climate for overreach. Voters like the sound of the $20 billion in tax cuts. They weren't so crazy about Reynolds deciding which books their children may read. In November, municipal and school elections, the Moms for Liberty and their agenda lost statewide, even in Pella and Carroll. That was a warning shot. Reynolds endorsed DeSantis for president, straying from the general tradition of Iowa governors not overtly endorsing presidential candidates. She also threw caution to the wind by dissing Donald Trump. The former president declared Reynolds was finished. Just before the Iowa caucuses, Trump stood on stage with Attorney General Brenna Byrd and suggested that Byrd will be governor one day. Byrd was reared politically by former Representative Steve King, who is not best friends with Reynolds. This is all bad news for Reynolds, who is among the most unpopular governors in America, alongside DeSantis. Look what her endorsement got him. 42 points behind Trump in Buena Vista County. That's a wow. DeSantis dropped out and endorsed Trump. His demise came with the endorsement from Reynolds. She came up from the Clark County Treasurer's Office through a couple years in the Iowa Senate to Lieutenant Governor, where she spent six years dutifully standing one step behind Governor Terry Branstead's right flank with a smile pasted on. She did well at smiling. When Branstead decamped for China as Trump's ambassador in 2017, Reynolds moved into Terrace Hill. Trump claimed that he put her there. She fell in with DeSantis, probably thinking she could be vice president, which infuriated Trump. Republicans like Trump more than Reynolds and a whale of a lot more than DeSantis. She will not be vice president, not Trump's anyhow. 
Trump did not anoint Byrd by accident. King is making moves after he was deposed by the Republican establishment when they got tired of his tirades. King played the role of John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Messiah Trump and getting beheaded along the route. He is climbing out of the grave. King is never far from the body politic. King has picked up on populist rumblings against the carbon dioxide pipelines serving ethanol plants. It's a powerful issue in northwest Iowa, the beating heart of the Republican Party, and Reynolds is on the wrong side of it. If Trump can get away with peddling the great replacement theory that colored folk will steal your white franchise, why can't a revived king do the same? The governor sounded adrift in her condition of the state address as the DeSantis campaign veered toward the electoral shoals. She was for increasing beginning teacher pay, but for gutting area education agencies. On second thought, after her speech, she threw out the AEA bloodletting on rural schools. A stumble starts her session. She started out sassy like Senator Joni Ernst, clever with a simple phrase like, make them squeal. The difference is that Ernst never got mean about it. Sassy turned to snarly when Reynolds melded minds with DeSantis and aroused the great golden bear, Trump. People who hang around the Capitol say Reynolds will not run for re-election in 2026. We won't know until Reynolds says so. Brenna Bird grinned from ear to ear, just like Reynolds once did with Trump. Politics turn on a dime. What is true yesterday is not true tomorrow. Voters are not exactly enthusiastic about Iowa's direction. State Auditor Rob Sand and House Minority Leader Jennifer Conferst have noticed and are positioning themselves. Sand steered clear of taking on Reynolds two years ago, but certainly sounds more confident about it today. Conferst could impress by picking up some House seats this November. Her future depends on it. Reynolds was invincible. Now, blood is in the water. She is scaling back her legislative ambitions. Income tax cuts top the agenda, which unifies a fractured base. Eventually, snarky doesn't wear well in Iowa. Mean is worse. Rejecting federal aid so poor kids could get better food in the summer. It never helps when the liar-in-chief is determined to bury you. The next campaign doesn't look like as much fun especially with an ambitious bird fluttering in the wings, and maybe a Steve King return from the oblivion of Kiron. Next, from the Capitol Dispatch, Iowa lawmakers consider requiring students, teachers, to sing the national anthem at school each day. Iowa students would be required to sing part of the national anthem at school each day under a bill advanced Wednesday by a House Education Subcommittee. Representative Sue Cahill, a Democrat from Marshalltown, stood and led the room in the singing The Star-Spangled Banner during her closing comments. Cahill said she sang because, quote, our capital is the perfect place to show patriotism, but requiring the singing of the national anthem in school classrooms each day is not the best path forward, as it would be, quote, mandating patriotism for students, unquote. Quote, 
I think that's something students choose, and it's something that they learn, and they'll learn it in other ways, Cahill said. House Study Bill 587 would require students and teachers at Iowa public schools to sing at least one verse of the national anthem every day, in addition to singing all four verses of the song on patriotic occasions, as well as at school functions or school-sponsored activities, as determined by the district. Students and teachers would not be required to sing along, but would be required to stand at attention, remain silent, and remove non-religious head coverings as the anthem is being sung. Private schools would be exempt from this requirement. Several speakers voiced objections to the requirements at the subcommittee meeting, saying that the provision violates students' First Amendment rights. Damian Thompson, a lobbyist for Iowa Safe Schools, said while he personally is not crazy about when people decide to kneel or sit for the national anthem, that they have the constitutional right to not participate. Cahill also voiced concerns that the requirement would take away valuable teaching time in school classrooms. The legislation also outlines requirements for social studies curriculum in Iowa public schools. It would require that instructors teach the history and meaning and how to love, honor, and respect the national anthem, as well as the sacrifices made by the founders of the United States, the important contributions made by all who have served in the armed forces of the United States since the founding, unquote. Dave Doughton, speaking on behalf of the school administrators of Iowa and rural school advocates of Iowa, said the organizations he represents oppose the measure because of the curriculum requirements outlined. Quote, we're not opposed to patriotism and all the things that are in this bill. We think a lot of this is being taught in the classrooms already, Doctrine said, but added that some school staff are opposed to being mandated that all districts have to do it and do it in the same way, unquote. The bill advanced with the support of Republican representatives Henry Stone and Phil Thompson. Stone said he believed Iowa students should be more exposed to things like our national anthem and patriotism. Quote, I grew up in a household that valued patriotism, that promoted patriotism. It's why I joined as a third-generation military man, serving our country for 22 years, Stone said. Quote, so I believe in this bill. I believe that it's something that we can put back into our schools that has added value, unquote. The legislation moves to the Full House Education Committee for further consideration. Now from the Iowa Capital Dispatch, low-income areas pay more in property taxes, Auditor Rob Sand reports. Iowans and private entities in lower-income areas pay more in property taxes than those in wealthier areas. A report issued by Iowa Auditor of State Rob Sand found. In a news conference Tuesday, Sand said the report was the first review of Iowa's property tax rates across the state in comparison to local income. The review documented the overall levies for every tax district, consolidated rates based on the levies of municipal, county, school district, and other taxing entities. 
and compared those with the median household income of each district based on U.S. Census Bureau data. The office found a correlation between higher income and lower property taxes in Iowa. According to the report, every $1,000 increase in an area's median household income is associated with a 10.6 cent decline in overall property tax rate. Sand said this shows that Iowa's property tax system is a regressive tax, an assertion he said was long suspected but had not been confirmed before the report. The fact that lower and middle income Iowans pay a higher percentage of value into property taxes than wealthy Iowans is important to keep in mind while looking at further property tax changes, he said. Quote, obviously, property taxes are something that the legislature is looking at on a regular basis, Sand said. They're changing the formula, changing the rules around them, and yet no one has actually addressed this question. No one's actually answered this question before, which I think is an important one, unquote. Sand said his office is not making policy recommendations based on the report. He also said the impact of the $100 million property tax cut signed into law in 2023 remains unclear. The law included levy rate caps for cities and counties, as well as property tax exemptions for veterans and seniors. Sand says 2023 law has created roadblocks. While he said he hopes the report will inform lawmakers' policy proposals on property taxes, Sand said he has not held meetings with legislators on the topic. He said the resistance legislative leaders showed toward meeting with his office as a law restricting the auditor's access to information and subpoena power advanced during last year's session indicated there may be better uses of our time for his office. Sand is the sole Democrat to hold a statewide elected office following the 2022 midterm election. Republicans also control both chambers of the legislature, holding a supermajority in the Iowa Senate. Though Republicans supporting the 2023 measure said it addresses legitimate public policy concerns, members of the minority party said the restrictions to the auditor's office were politically motivated. The state auditor said while he cannot share specific details about how the new law has impacted his office, he said, quote, there have been roadblocks in getting information during some audits. Details on those issues will be released with a report of the audit, he said. Now back to local stories from The Courier. Former Dunkerton man charged with animal neglect for dead and starving pets. Story written by Jeff Reinitz. Dateline Dunkerton. A former Dunkerton man has been charged for dead and starving pets found at his home in December. Blackhawk County Sheriff's deputies arrested Jonathan Allen McComber, 26, currently of Ionia, on Sunday for two counts each of animal neglect and animal neglect with death. He was released pending trial. According to court records, deputies were called to his home at 310 Woodland Drive in Dunkerton on December 29th. Neighbors hadn't seen anyone come to the home in a week and were concerned about the animals inside.
deputies saw an emaciated dog in the home, and they entered looking for people. No one was inside, but deputies found a deceased dog and a deceased cat in the master bedroom. Food and water for the pets were absent, and the house was unlivable because of the amount of animal feces, according to court records. Cedar Falls Community Theater brings comedy The Book Club Play to Ulster Regent on February 2nd through the 11th. Dateline Cedar Falls. Karen Mitchell retired three years ago after 25 years as artistic director at the University of Northern Iowa's Interpreters Theater. She returned to performing in 2022 in Cedar Falls Community Theater's Feisty Hallelujah Girls, but was adamant she'd only be willing to direct a staged reading. Then she read the book club play script. Mitchell is making her CFCT directorial debut when CFCT's production of the hit show opens at the Oster Regent Theater, 103 Main Street. Performances begin at 7 p.m. Friday and continue through February 11th. Quote, I thought it was so much fun, said Mitchell. It's charming and funny, but mostly it's charming. The play has something to say about how we present ourselves in front of a camera, unquote. Written by Karen Zacharias, the book club play is about books and the people who love them and the dynamics of what happens when the group becomes the focus of a documentary film. The camera picks up intimate discussions between six friends about life and literature, creating pandemonium. It goes on and off at will, controlled from another continent, and, because it's inside a lockbox, it can't be switched off, and footage can't be erased. As director, Mitchell doesn't orchestrate every moment in every scene for every actor. Instead, she instructs her really smart cast to come up with hilarious bits that play with the idea of being caught in the camera's eye. Quote, their facial expressions are so wonderful. I can see them thinking, and I know they're engaged throughout the entire show, she said. There are 11 cast members, including five cameos or pundits, who are interviewed between scenes. Quote, this is an ensemble show, and the six members of the book club never leave the stage except between scenes for costume or prop changes. It's not a star vehicle. It's exhausting. You're working really hard and on the whole time you're on stage, she explained. Cast members are Bernie Hosenschelt, Chris Klein, Katie Baumgartner, Bethany Nelson, Jacob Rhea, Kyle Webbers, Jada Baumholver, Emily Einsman, and Grace Schoenthal, and Alex Rowan. Schoenthal is tag-teaming the show with Mitchell as associate director, as well as having a role in the show. Quote, it's more challenging than I thought it would be, but I'm confident we're going to get there, said Schoenthal of Cedar Falls. The University of Northern Iowa graduate student appeared as Esmeralda in CFCT's summer hit, Hunchback of Notre Dame and in the 2022 collaborative Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, 
at the Gallagher Blue Dorn Performing Arts Center. Quote, playing a role, I get to see what's working from the perspective of the cast members, so it's actually easy to direct from on stage, the associate director said. CFCT Executive Director Greg Holt designed the stage set to resemble a modern upscale apartment in 2008. Waterloo artist Paco Rosick loaned two paintings for the show. Quote, and there are two lamps, my couch, and a bench from my house, not to mention pillows and accessories. My dog is at a loss. Those are things I sit on. What are you doing? Mitchell said with a laugh. Although the comedy uses few special effects, certain moments create the impression of scenes stopping as if placed on pause, sound effects including a camera lens automatically focusing. Mitchell has been enjoying the experience. Quote, community theater, both CFCT and Waterloo Community Playhouse, is very welcoming and people work very hard. The community is very good about supporting theater and the arts, unquote. Shows are at 7 p.m. Friday and February 9th and 2 p.m. February 4th and February 10th and 11th. Tickets are $22 for adults, $12 for students. Available online at www.mycfct.org or by calling area code 319-277-5283 or at the box office from 1 to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday and one hour before each performance. Council OK's Platt for Waverly Aldi Store. Story written by Andy Malone, and the dateline is Waverly. On Monday, the City Council approved a revised plat in a 6-0 vote to accommodate proposed Aldi grocery store off the main drag. The approximately 2.5 acres reportedly being sold by owners Wave Town Properties of Waverly sits to the north of Taco Bell at the northeast corner of 4th Street Southwest and 29th Avenue Southeast. The council's vote came with no substantive discussion and marks the final hurdle involving an elected or appointed body in a public meeting. Council member Julie Myers was absent. The site plan and building permits are handled internally. ISG in Waterloo is the engineer on the project. Quote, we like to see these national brands come in because they help elevate us, Bill Werger, Director of Community and Economic Development, said afterwards, while also acknowledging the value of local businesses like small coffee shops. Not immediately known was a construction timeline or the planned size of the Aldi store that will be accessible via a new drive off of 4th Street. The Planning and Zoning Commission voted 6-0 to zero on January 4th to recommend approval of the Southgate Plat 2, a revised subdivision plan with the new Lot 1, formerly two smaller lots, where the grocery store is slated to be constructed. The property sits less than a mile from a high V grocery store further north off 4th Street. The nearest Aldi stores are in Waterloo and Cedar Falls. There are approximately 40 in the state and more than 2,300 in almost 40 states, 
according to Aldi's website. Quote, We're always interested in new businesses coming to town, especially if we hear local people are driving out of town to frequent that same business somewhere else, said Councilmember Ann Rath in a telephone interview. Quote, I've gotten a lot of emails, in particular, from people who go to other Aldi on a regular basis. She said the Economic Development Department has been working hard to make progress on that subdivision on 4th Street. Development that sprouts up there will be the first a driver sees coming off U.S. Highway 218. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, January 26th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of The Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. Music